Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. No guests this week, which gives me a little more time with my co-host. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one. I want to spend some time with you talking about Top Chef Season 19. That is to say the season that filmed in Houston and just wrapped up last week. Houstonian Evelyn Garcia was a finalist uh, for the title of Top Chef. She did not win. Chef Buda Lowe did. Michael, I know that you've been watching the season. I've, I've certainly been watching it. I've been writing recaps of all the episodes. So just kind of big picture. Like, what do you think about the season as a whole? Do you, do you feel like it depicted Houston well? Well, the season as a whole, first off, this is the 19th season for Top Chef. And the level, like the quality of the contestants is just insane. Like most of them already have incredible accolades, maybe James Beard nominations. Many of them have either a restaurant or sometimes many restaurants. It's actually nice to see it when they have a contestant who's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a home chef or you know, I'm a private chef or I, I, I'm a sous chef, something like that. Um, but regardless, the level of quality among all the you know, contestants was really strong. Uh, there was no, you know, hats off to the producers. They didn't really formulate any melodrama and there really wasn't, other than I guess it was Sam, most of them were pretty even-tempered. Sam was this kind of wild guy. I wish he had lasted longer because you just that guy just breathed crazy. And, uh, you know, uh, he went out early. But, wow, talk about amusing. Uh, absolutely. But as far as the whole season went, I thought it was really strong. Uh, they saw they visited a lot of Houston. Um, I mean, let's Houston is not a tourist spot. I mean, let's let's be very honest about that. It's, you know, and there's a lot of reasons for that, which I won't go into, but there's many great things about this city. And they I think they touched on a lot of that going down to the Strand and Galveston, of course, visiting NASA. Those are kind of, you know, rather de rigor, you know, events. Uh, but going to Tremont House, uh, you know, exploring the post, before, you know, that was to the post was just opening, you know, and so they really made that a, it was a great place to shoot. Uh, embracing the uh, Asia town community, uh, which dovetails right into, you know, what Houston, you know, a lot of what Houston's about, which is diversity, I thought was great. Um, so all in all, I thought it was pretty strong. Uh, Padma, uh, I'd like to say her outfits were incredible this year, too. Uh, you know, her hair looked great. Uh, she always <laughs> is. You know, like a lot of people just say she's a pretty face. I, I met her a long time ago before all this started and just by mere chance. Uh, and she is a first class intellect. She's really smart uh, and she really knows food. So it's a good set of judges, all of them, um, I think. I think that's, it's great that they've kept them all together because they're, they're a good crew. Uh, and I, I give them a lot of um, legitimacy as far as uh, who they are and how they how they rate things. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, I, I think that's all. I think that's all well said. I, I think the one thing for me is that it, it didn't feel like we saw as much of Houston. I mean, you, you referenced the post. They went there for for two different challenges, the night market challenge and, and the restaurant wars. You know, they went to the Natural History Museum. They went to it just didn't feel like there were that many Houston restaurants involved. I mean, you know, they, they filmed it 
Annie Cafe, you could sort of see it. They filmed at Blue Dorn. I thought we got a little better look at Blue Dorn. I mean, really, the, the only restaurant that really, like, thinking back on the season that really stood out was J Bar M, the barbecue restaurant in Edo, uh, because they, you know, they had to cook on the smokers and everything. And, and that, you know, that made more of an impression. But, you know, you talk about the, the Asia town, right? I, I think in part because there were, there were very strict COVID protocols in place, you know, having, having been to a couple of elimination challenges, we had to get tested beforehand. And, and that was, uh, you know, wear masks and all that kind of stuff. That was a big component, but, but they didn't, they didn't go to Chinatown. They, they set up like a, a tasting event and brought the, the chefs from different Asian backgrounds to, to them, to the contestants, instead of sending the contestants out. So, you know, I, I just, I didn't feel like it was as connected to Houston maybe as it could have been. And so I, some of that, some of that character of the city that, that, you know, that they had even in Portland in the first COVID season, I thought, you know, we just didn't, we didn't really get. Yeah, I agree with some of that to be sure. Like they didn't go to Asia town, but thinking back, that was, this was right when Omicron was the surge was just happening. And they, like I said, they took the, the protocols extremely seriously uh, I would like to have them have gone to Asia Town, but as far as like seeing more of the restaurant, you're never going to see like in any episode. You don't really see more of the restaurant because what is it? It's just the prep area and then the openings. It's really these are just the venues that they're putting the names on. And, and if you look at previous seasons, that's pretty much how it goes. Um, and keep in mind, Houston doesn't really have like we have no topography. You know, there's no sense of let's go and see this incredible outdoor you know you know area. It really doesn't have that. So. In some ways, you kind of asked and answered your own, you know, question about that. Why didn't we see more? Is that that there isn't like that cinema, cinema, cinematographic, you know, image that kind of just encapsulates and brings forth Houston in a in a in a, in a very visual way. I think is is this more. To, but you know, they did, like you said, at J Bar, we got to see the smokers, and that was great. I thought they handled the barbecue episode well. They brought in a really good mix uh, and a good sense of quality of what represents Houston barbecue. Yes, there was a few people I would have included, uh, but uh, that's just, you know, that's what they did. Uh, I thought choosing Greg Gatlin as kind of like their uh, emissary host for that was great. He's got great experience. He's great on camera and Greg really knows what he's talking about. So that was uh, refreshing. Yeah, I, right. I, I think, no, I, I think Greg was great on TV. But again, you know, they, they had all these pitmasters and, and I know it's, you know, the, the eating at the elimination challenge component is, is maybe 10 minutes out of a 45 minute broadcast. They got to keep it really tight. There was, you know, that if you, if you caught the cry on, or if you, you knew the people just from living in Houston, recognizing them, then you could be like, oh, there's Russell Riggles, there's Scott Moore, there's the Don and Theo from Koi or, or whatever. But but, you know, no, like no context, right? Like nothing about sort of who these people are or why they were selected or, and, and I guess that's not the show's focus, but, you know, again, if we had had different mentors, right. If they had been divided up, if the chef tests had been divided up into teams and they had to cook different proteins, they could have been each mentored by a different local barbecue emissary. I mean, yeah, there's a yeah, million and I even. I agree with you. I, I mean, I talked to Willow, you know, who I briefly worked with when I was there. Uh, I was at J Bar after that they filmed there, and they foolishly didn't call me beforehand to to help uh, <laughs> shepherd that. 
But regardless, uh, you know, like they gave them 12 hours to do a brisket. And, you know, you talk to any of these area craft barbecue pitmasters, you talk to most of them, it's 12 hours just doesn't suffice. Um, I was happy to see Evelyn win that, the hometown girl, take it on. You know, that was great. Uh, and I would like to have seen more context with that. But I, I think that was a time permitting thing and also not, you know, uh, yeah, I would like to have seen that. But we didn't get that. So. Right. So. So. Yes, I'm. I'm happy that Houston was was included. I, you know, visit Houston or Houston first rather has not stated kind of what they spent to lure Top Chef uh, to produce TV here. But you know, I I I think you know it showed some of the city, maybe not as much of the city as I would have liked. But but let me just sort of shift gears with you slightly because you mentioned Evelyn Garcia. You know, they don't they don't tell you among the top three who the runner up is, but it was pretty clear that she was the runner up behind Buddha. Uh, she acquitted herself very well. She won the elimination challenge at Brennan's with the a dish inspired by Selena. She won the brisket challenge at J-Bar. She won the, the, last, uh, the last challenge in Houston before the competition moved on, to, uh, moved on to Tucson. So, you know, she did very well. But, but let, me just, let me just ask you, like, did you, when, when you learned that Evelyn would be represented, the only Houstonian Participating in the show, did you have any expectations, and and do you think she represented us well? Okay, well, first off, uh, any expectations? No, I you know I just I go in and see who they have, and that's fine. I'm I'm glad they chose a a chef from Houston. Um, we haven't seen that many in the show over the years. I know it's it's a it's a hardship to leave your job. Uh, and to make, you know, a, a certain, a, really a certain amount of sacrifices to be on the show. Uh, more and more, though, like it, you know, the, the amount of money they win has gone up. The fact that they're getting money now on quick fires, you know, uh, the chef from Mississippi, uh, Nick Wallace. Nick, Nick the uh, baker. AKA the baker, exactly. Call the baker because he won so many of those money challenges. So, I mean, he leaves this show, you know, certainly having made at least what he would have made having worked, you know, not worked. I mean, he... Uh, that that was that worked out really well for him, and I'm I'm happy to see that. Um, as far as how she did, man, I, I think Evelyn is fantastic. She was actually a lot better than I thought. You know, I I had had some of her uh, cooking. I had gone to Palton Row, uh, her other spot over off Washington Avenue, and I was also a fan of her condiments. Uh, kin that I get at Henderson and Kane. I've got her ketchup. I've got her garlic oil. So this is a woman who understands spice profiles she clearly has been raised in a latino you know the the that hispanic atmosphere and all the incredible rich culinary traditions that that comes with uh she's clearly really well schooled in that but then having you know really done the whole southeast asia thing and brought that to bear that wasn't just like this sort of a dalian she it's clearly it's clearly she's cooking from her heart and what we saw this year is like you see every year, like the mistakes that Top Chef, is, you know, contestants make, you know, I want to lead on restaurant roars or they make risotto, which apparently none of the Top Chefs will ever, ever enjoy, no matter how well they cook it. So it's like, <laughs> just, don't, just don't do it. I mean, just don't do it. Uh, and it seems like a lot of them really did their homework where that's concerned. And, the you know, the big issue with a lot of these people is not their skill set either on prep or on preparation. It's, you know, this is, it's a time thing, you know, like when you get these, it's just, I can't even conceive of it. It's like, it's, you talk to them. It's just like, it's uh, being under the gun with this time is really a big deal. So when they finally get to the final, you know, and they get to really kind of really spread their wings, I was really surprised at at Sarah and really just 
I loved her ethos. I loved what she was doing with the whole bringing the whole let's not waste anything. Bring it. I, I thought she, she ended up being a lot stronger than I thought. I watched. I actually watch all the uh, um, Last Chance Kitchen. Yeah, Last Chance Kitchen. I mean, she crushed it. And we've seen this uh, before with people like Kirsten and other people who who go to Last Chance Kitchen and then just like they. Cr- it, it's terrible to see someone win like five or six and then they lose one and they're out. Uh, so I was really happy to see her take it to the next level. Um, Buddha, yeah, I mean, he was kind of a preseason favorite in my mind anyway. Uh, you know, it really just his his technique, um, having trained under Claire Smith at Core in London. I mean, Core is, I mean, that's one of the top restaurants in the world. And if you, <laughs> their Instagram site, by the way, fantastic. Uh and if you look at how they prepare things and their plating, it's insane. It's not just the, the attention to detail. It's the execution is fantastic. So he he brought a lot to the game. And I thought what was interesting is when Buddha had a chance, when he cooked just uh, they were talking about cooking something with your family, when they did the thing in the Galveston and he did the Amatriani. I mean, how you know simplistic, if you will, almost like very rustic. And yet he like he knocked it out of the park. So he really proved that. A, he could cook from his heart. It wasn't just this kind of intellectual exercise, but also he could do something simple and really uh, excel at it. Uh, yeah, that, no, that, no. I, I, I think that's that's a good point because I think, you know, I've seen some criticism that he was sort of soulless or that no. you know, it was all it was grounded in in this kind of showy technique, but not in any sort of emotion. But I but I agree with you. I mean, he showed great emotion when he made that pasta for his wife. And, and I thought his dish or his four course meal in the finale you know, each course inspired by a different family member, relatively, I mean, you know, relatively simple dishes, but with really refined preparations, you know, there's nothing about Mongolian lamb that necessarily screams fine dining, but he, he was able to elevate it, you know. Yeah. And they got criticized for the 80s and 90s by Eric Repair, which I thought was hilarious. I mean, if that's your, your, yeah, he would, he would. Uh, yeah, I thought DeMar Brown was going to make it to the final. I really liked him. I was really rooting for him. He just had that very even tempered, but it was still someone who was very connected and very, you know, he clearly like food was a big deal for him. Uh, this wasn't just like a job. Uh, and like I said, his even temperament and yet his skill level, I was sad to see him not make the final, but I hope, uh, I hope he bears dividends from having been on the show. Yeah. And then I, I guess just to sort of put a pin in this, cause we're, we're running a little bit long, but uh, you know, I, I, we, we just sort of touched on this, but, but I think Buddha's is a, a perfectly worthy winner. I, I, you know, I, you know, Bill Simmons, the, the podcaster, the one-time sports writer talks about, uh, you know, different sized NBA MVP trophies, depending on the level of accomplishment, you know, so like a, a really great Jordan season would have like a supersized trophy that you, you'd almost need like a forklift. You know, I, I don't know that this was like one of those um, top shift seasons, you know, where it was just like an epic run from from start to finish. And and I I think this this guy's going to make them, you know, at the, you know, the Stephanie Izzard level or, or the Brooke Williamson level necessarily. But, you know, a, a solid run against good competition. This is sort of a medium sized top shift trophy for me. Yeah, that's well put when you say it's really hard to get on the show and then to do well, but to do well beyond that, you talk about people like, you know, Kirsten Kirsch and Brooke Williamson and Stephanie Izzard, you know, who have just, I mean, they're, they're superstars, uh, you know, and then there's some top chef winners like you don't even know 
where they are, you know, or what happened to them. Uh, so uh, that's an interesting analogy. I like it. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to topic number two. Greg Gatlin and Michelle Wallace have announced they're opening a new restaurant called Gatlin's Fins and Feathers, a comfort food restaurant that will sell fried chicken and seafood. It's opening this month in Independence Heights. Michael, I, I know you're a Gatlin's fan. Have you had any of their chicken or seafood dishes that they've been testing in the run up to opening Fins and Feathers? Um, I don't know, actually, if I've had any of them. I haven't had anything recently of that ilk. I mean, I was there just a week ago. You know, I had some of the ribs and, of course, you know, dirty rice. You know how I am about that. Um, but I've been going to Gatlin since, you know, 18th Street, uh, since back in the other place in the Heights. And I worked with uh, Michelle. We worked at a high-end uh, – we worked at Culinaire, a high-end catering company together. And she's got mad skills. You know, she's just – she's really she's got it going on and despite the fact that she got she got pushed off the the barbecue brawl uh you know the the barbecue competition uh which was ridiculous uh she's really she's got greg is really lucky to have her i think it, and, and and vice versa i think that's a good combination i know greg is looking for has been looking to do this and looking at another location for a long time so this isn't like it's not an impulsive thing that he's done um, and I, I, you know, I'll be there. Uh, I mean, you talked to me before. I remember that a lot of people have also mentioned that, Hey, he was, they're putting it by, you know, barbecue in, which is famous for it's that type of food. Well, particularly right. it's, for it's, it's fried chicken and fried shrimp. If we're going to get two things that I, I yeah. think we're probably going to get at, uh, Gatlin's fits and feathers. Yeah. Uh, there's more than enough room for everybody on this one. Uh, you know, so I, I think the location's fine. Uh, I will be venturing out there, um, uh, you know, so I'm excited. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, and I haven't had the fried chicken, unfortunately, but, I, but I have had Michelle's seafood gumbo uh, with smoked crab in it. It's, it's oh, yeah. absolutely fantastic. And, you know, Felice, who's on this, uh, Felice Sloan, who's on this podcast regularly, you know, anytime that, that pops up on social media that they're doing it, you know, she builds her whole day around it. Like she's, oh, he goes every time. Yeah, I'll do. I go there with with Chris Reed, and we because that that dark roux, oh man, is so on point. God, it's so good. So yeah, that in the winter, particularly when they run it more often, fantastic. Yeah, and so you know, I you know having experienced some of those kind of dishes, I I am super excited to see, you know, shrimp and grits, fried fish sandwich, you know, blackened snapper you know, all of these different things that they're going to do, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I can't wait to try this. It's open at the end of June. It should be a really nice, it'll be kind of in that, you know, maybe not the best restaurant to open in, in 2022, but it'll be in that mix in the top, certainly in the top 10. I have, I have high hopes for this. I, I think it's a good mix. I mean, there's, there's no shortage of fried chicken places and chicken sandwich places. They're everywhere. And, and many of them very good. Uh, but like how many really good sort of fry, you know, seafood, fry seafood, not high end places uh, that, you know, there's there's Connie's over on airline and the, the spotted places all over Houston. So I think it's a good combination. It brings two things that a lot of people like together. And uh, they're, with their skill set, I think uh, I think they should do well. No, absolutely. All right. And then just very briefly, topic number three. Rice Epicurean has announced that its final Houston store in the Briar Grove neighborhood 
will be closing at the end of July. It will become a new location of specs. Uh, you know, this is not unexpected. Obviously, you know, the, the, the family that owns Rise Epicurean has really become more invested in the real estate business. They own properties across the city. And so to get out of the grocery business, not a huge surprise. But Michael, let me just ask you, do you have any memories of shopping at Rice Epicurean that you would like to share? Um, well, if I went to any of the Rice Epicureans, it was the one on Westheimer near Wesleyan. And, you know, it was like the original kind of specialty store of that ilk was, I guess, Jamail's back in the day, back in the, the 80s until they closed. You know, the, the place where you could get specialty high-end foods. Uh, Specs, when they built the downtown one, you know, through that, when they built the addition in there and they, so they could get things like caviar and things like that. But, but a real, a grocery store where you could get kind of high-end quality uh, goods, uh, Rice Epicurean was like, you know, they, they had a, they had, they had their spot, their moment in the sun to be sure. But for me, you know, I, I'm not, I would never do my regular shopping there. I'm sorry, I'm not rich. Uh, but I would go there for especially, you know, if I was making some kind of specialty item that I couldn't find anywhere. But once, you know, once uh, Central Market opened there, it really just that uh, just put the hammer down. You know, sometimes you can put competing uh, institutions next to each other, uh, even in the food business, uh, and they can both thrive. But this is like it just, nah, it just they absolutely crushed them. Uh, so, yeah. uh, you know, uh, they had their moment in the sun and I'm glad they did. And I wish them well. But, yeah, the, their day is gone. Their day is over. I think that's I think that's all fair. Uh, you know, the, the one thing just, you know, uh, maybe maybe not all of the Houston Jewish community, but certainly for a segment of the Jewish community, uh, their catering department, you know, when you particularly for families in, in mourning. Right. That that. Uh, the community could sort of get together. They could contribute money to an account at Rice. And then the family would receive, you know, prepared meals for a couple of weeks as they sort of navigate that, that process of, of losing a loved one and maybe not being focused on, you know, day-to-day things like preparing meals. You know, that was a, a very useful service. And, and I suspect that there are other businesses that, that will fill that role, uh, especially when Rice closes. But, you know, if, if, if you ask me to think of anything, anything about Rice Epicurean, it's, oh, you know, that's, that's who you call when families are in need of comfort. And so, you know, I just want to acknowledge kind of that role in, in my own personal community and, and say that, you know, it, it will be missed, certainly. And, and I think, you know, I'm sure that Specs will do great um, right across the street from that massive HEB at uh, San Felipe and Fountainview. But uh you know, right. Rice definitely had its role. And, and, and I know a lot of people are going to miss it. Nice legacy. Absolutely. All right. I am going to say that does it for the news of the week. We will be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. Michael, for our restaurants of the week, I want to talk about two established seafood restaurants that we have both dined at together in the past month or so. I'd like to start with 1751 CN Bar. This is Sambrook's Management Company's upscale seafood restaurant near the Heights. We kind of went on a whim. It had been a while, I think, for both of us. We'd been to 1751. Uh, you know, I, I was just sort of flipping through pictures in, in preparation for this. I mean, we had a 
a lobster chawanmushi. We had a piece of halibut. We had crawfish, uh, Johnny cakes. We had oysters. We had crab stuff, squash blossoms. I mean, we really had a quite an array of different. Uh, JD crushed us. Different dishes. Yeah, JD JD Woodward, the the now former chef of 1751. Uh, he just he just left at the end of last week. Whoa! Uh, really crushed us. Yeah. Well, I know. He posted on Facebook that this was his, that he was, that he's, he's leaving or, or oh, now. This is what I get left. for not being on Facebook, you know? That's, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, we'll come, we'll come back to that in just a second, but, but maybe right, just, right. just talk a little bit about uh, what you remember from that night. And uh, I mean, the obvious, you know, the obvious question in my opinion is, is this the best seafood restaurant in Houston? Okay. Let's talk about that. So high end seafood places are difficult beasts to run and to keep profitable uh, because it's, you're dealing with a, a product that doesn't keep for very long. Uh, if you have a couple of days where you have off business, you know, it's not like you're cryovacking the steaks and they'll be fine. Like some of it, you just got to throw away. So your food cost is very high, uh, you know, and, and people with that kind of perception, you know, everything wanted to be value driven. Um, it's more value driven on quality than it, and freshness than it is on the visual and the size, you know? And so some, for some people that they don't really kind of click into that necessarily. And so it's a, it's a harder, like I said, it's a harder beast to, to tame. Um, but we're in the shadow of the Gulf. We're the fourth largest city. We got to have something high end and of good quality. Uh, and I think 1751 fits that bill. Perfect. I mean, when it, when starfish started out, you know, uh, I thought they were embracing that ethos really well. And I guess the general manager, Adrian Quino, who came from there, guy's been there forever. Uh, he's really trained the staff very well. Let's talk about service first, is that it's professional. Uh, people know to serve from the left or move from the right. It's friendly, uh, but it's never intrusive. You know, it's a well-trained staff. Um, the bar program uh, which I guess, uh, you know, originally put forth uh, by the uh, the two ladies. Um, Chris and Lori. Yeah. The ladies uh, of libation. The ladies of libation. They did an incredible job with the cocktail program and, and making it sort of this. If you want to have a gin or a gin cocktail or there's a particular gin that you want to try, that's that's the place to go. I mean, there's plenty of bourbon you know, the bourbon renaissance and, and we're seeing, you know, so the tequila and the mezcal thing, uh, who cares about vodka, whatever, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, and David Manis, who trained under them has really made it his own, you know, and once again, he's trained the staff well, cause they were able to, every time I've gone, the staff's been able to talk about the cocktails and, and the different things on there really, uh, really intelligently. Uh, I love eating at the bar too, cause then you really get the, you get the service there, but so that first off service really strong. Okay. Now, as far as the diversity of food and embracing the area, once again, I give it high marks on that. Uh, yes, you're going to see, you know, some common Gulf fish that, you know, you're going to see snapper and things like that. Uh, the crab, uh, and then doing seasonal things like, you know, the, the squash blossoms, but, you know, bringing in the East coast oysters too, not just the typical mid Atlantic, you know, blue points, you're seeing stuff from the James river, of course, uh, from the PEI, uh, Prince Edward Island. Uh, it's a nice diversity and it changes over time. And, and it's, you know, I, you know, uh, competitively priced considering how expensive that is. Um, but the, the, the dishes themselves too, uh, you know, that crawfish with the Johnny cakes and the brown butter, 
fantastic. I, I think we had the wood grilled oysters, which came out with the hollandaise, and I was I was kind of awestruck, like this is going to be terrible. Hollandaise on oysters, like why would you do that? All you're going to do is taste this creamy glop, you know, of 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 hollandaise. But they aerated it, so it, it even though it covered the oyster, it, it really muted the flavor beautifully and complemented it perfectly. And I was, you know, it's great to be proven wrong when your first impression is that something's not going to be good. It was fantastic. Um, I, I think another good point would be that we had uh, one of the best dishes we had that day was the grilled mahi mahi, a simple piece of fish that was cooked just perfectly. Uh, mahi mahi is fine. It wouldn't, you know, make my top five or maybe in my top 10 fish that I like, but I loved it. That's, it could be the best piece I've ever had. I was really impressed. And so the diversity of skill set of the local ingredients, as well as bringing other stuff in, and then the seasonality, you combine that, you know, yeah, I'll give it the best seafood restaurant in Houston. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I really think in terms of the, the quality of ingredients and the creativity, you know, the only real competition is, is probably these days is probably Gulf Strauman, uh, which, you know, being in a food hall setting, you know, as much as I like the food there, the service isn't quite as refined that, you know, certainly the, the overall experience, the, the, you know, the decor the furniture, the glassware, all that kind of stuff doesn't, you know, 1751 is way ahead of them on, on all of those, right. on, on all of those measures. So if the, if the food is a tie, uh, you know, beverages and, and experience and decor, everything that, that all sort of pushes uh, 1751 to the, to the top for me. And so I, it will be interesting to see what happens to it without JD at the helm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's got a great crew there and, and, you know, Michael Sandbrooks, the owner is, is very focused on quality and doing a great job. And so I, I don't, I don't necessarily worry that it's going to like fall off a cliff or anything, but you know, he, JD had been a, a strong presence in the kitchen. And, and so, you know, how they, how they meet that challenge, I think will be, will be interesting. And, and I'll want to go there, you know, go back there in a couple of months to see how they're doing. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully we have something, you know, I'll tell you offline, uh, but, but I think we'll have, we'll have big news for JD. J, JD's not, JD's not leaving town. He's not going anywhere. He's, he's on to bigger and better things. So good action. Good at, yeah. I, that's all. I think it's well articulated too. Uh, and I would, I would circle back to the fact that, you know, the GM Adrian Cunha has been there for a long time. And even though he's like a very reserved guy, I mean, you don't, you don't, keep that position. You don't have that quality of staff. We really are having an influence. So I think he's a good, you know, good person to have at the helm uh, for continuity. Um, I, the last thing I would add really about that is that it's not something we had, but I've been there before and I had the ice seafood tower and the seafood tower is always that, like really that kind of that sexy thing of oysters and lobster and crab and shrimp and all these things. And it's, it's great with, you know, a nice crisp like Sancerre or, you know, uh, Chardonnay or if you will, a champagne even. Um, or good IPA. Uh, but what I'd say about it is like, it's one of the best value ice seafood towers I've ever had before. I've seen it before where they really hit it hard with Gulf oysters because they're big and they take up a lot of space, you know, and they'll have some kind of whitefish salad that like has, it just, you know, it seems like that's kind of like, it looks like they're just kind of phoning it in. Well, not the case here. You know, not only is it the, the, the breadth and the depth of quality on the seafood tower is great, but I think you know, $150 is never a cheap proposition for anybody, but, you know, with a group, I think it's great. And uh, I, I would get it, you know, I've had it before and I would get it again. It's, it's a, it's a worthy splurge every now and then. 
No, absolutely. Um, all right. And let, let me just move on from 1751 CN bar to another seafood restaurant. I want to talk to you about flying fish. This is the, uh, uh, you know, to- totally opposite, fast, casual, uh, very family friendly, located in the Heights, uh, right at the intersection of Durham and 19th Street. I, I have to admit, I went to Flying Fish when it opened in 2019. I was a little bit underwhelmed. We sort of found ourselves there uh, by accident. <laughs> Everything else was closed. You know, it was Labor Day and, there, and more well, the first yeah. couple of choices were, were not available to us. So, you know, I went in with kind of low expectations. You went in never having been before. So let me just ask you, what did you, what did you think of Flying Fish? Okay, so Flying Fish, I had never been to. I didn't even know, uh, and really until today when I actually looked it up, uh, that it's part of like eight or nine, you know, different op- of similar operations across the kind of Gulf region, you know, Dallas, Arkansas, uh, Texas. Uh, yeah, but it's part it's- of the same restaurant group as uh, the Flying Saucer, the, the beer bar, and also Rodeo Goat, the hamburger. Oh, I did not know that. I did not know that. Well, their menu, first of all, is massive. I mean, there's a lot of Cajun quality stuff. You know, there's, you know, uh, there's crawfish bisque and then there's, of course, gumbo, but there's jambalaya. And then they have all these different fried seafood operations and all the uh, you know dishes and platters and the combinations they're in. But they do a lot of stuff grilled. You know, one of the things that, that I found uh, interesting is that, you know, they do everything in peanut oil. Uh, peanut oil is incredibly expensive. And so to make that kind of commitment and everything tastes better of it, you know, at least in my, in my purview, the, in peanut oil. So yeah, you, they, first of all, when you walk up, they'll tell you that because of course the uh, peanut allergies uh, have only grown over the last 15, 20 years, but the quality of it is really good. Uh, so I had a po' boy and the quality of the bread was good. The crawfish was good. M- you know, my crawfish chowder, didn't exactly enthrall me. Uh, I probably wouldn't get it again, but I saw enough different things there that I really wanted to try again, you know, they, uh, and they were doing a crawfish special there, you know, it's kind of the end of the season. And I, you know, I walked around and asked a few people what they thought and they were, they said it was really solid. So like would, even though we just kind of happened onto it because our first three or four choices were all closed for Memorial day, we found this stuff in that area and I was really happy with it. So would I go back? Absolutely. I would. So I have to say, I mean, I came into it with kind of low expectations, uh, which has not been my experience at either the Flying Saucer or Rodeo Goat, both of which I enjoy. Uh, but I think, you know, it, it was uh, something through the first time I went there, I ran into someone that I like did not want to see that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I think it just kind of threw me off mentally. So uh, what I will say is, Going with you and, and having taken a break for a couple of years, I was really impressed. You know, I thought my shrimp were fried nicely. I thought the crawfish tasted good. I had a bowl of gumbo I really enjoyed. I think the whole thing, you know, four shrimp and two catfish fillets and gumbo with a drink and tax cost uh, a little over 20 bucks. I thought that's that's pretty good for, for seafood in the age of our current economy. So I'm, I call that a win. And, and I call I'd that a win. And Coke Zero on on their on their fountain drinks, you know, like what's not to like? Absolutely. All right, I'm going to say that does it for the restaurants of the week. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, brother. All right, and that does it for our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on CultureMap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. 
Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ha ha ha, Muffin coming in at the end. <laughs>